The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is episode 220 for the week of June 7th, 2010. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight are Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hello there, Sawyer. How you doing? How you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. And also, welcome back, Gina Hurley. Hey, Sawyer. How you doing? Glad to have you back with us. That's how I'm doing. Also joining us tonight, you may remember her back from an earlier episode. Please welcome back Craftlass. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me again. Not a problem. Looking forward to your insight a little bit later tonight. In the meantime, let's get right into things and jump into preparations for the next space shuttle mission, which is STS-133 aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery. Just today, on June 7, 2010, the OMS, or Orbital Maneuvering System, pods were removed to be examined as the crew continues to undergo preparations at the Johnson Space Center, including last week completing their first EVA run-through. As of right now, the mission is still scheduled for launch mid-September. So, any predictions or anything with STS-133? You think it's going to go without a hitch? You think it's going to go on time, etc.? They're predicting uh, September. Um, we're going to keep our fingers crossed, but uh, I have a feeling that may or may not happen. Uh, we've got uh, also, it looks like uh, back on Thursday as well, it looks like the uh, crew uh, did their first uh, uh, EVA rehearsals, and today they were, today on uh, June 7th, they were uh, practicing the rendezvous and docking procedures for uh, for ISS rendezvous. So so far, you know, it looks looks uh, pretty good. This information, by the way, is coming the website space space dash multimedia nl Just thought I'd go ahead and pass that that along. But uh, again, um, things are going. Looks like the things are going as as planned. It's just, are we going to get this thing off on time? It'll be nice to see her go on her final mission, whenever that may be, and then sitting in the Smithsonian Museum. Continuing along then, this past weekend, four inductees were inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame, and Gina, I think you'd give us a little more insight on this, if you would please. Yeah, certainly. This is an event I've attended for a couple of years. It's a wonderful multi-day event. They have um, several members of the Astronaut Hall of Fame come to um, a gala dinner uh, the Friday night before the event. Actually, I should back up and say that they always hold the event, always held the first Saturday in May to commemorate Alan Shepard's launch. I'm not exactly sure why the event was hosted this year in June, but it was moved a month. And it is held at the Saturn V Center at KSC. So it's just a fantastic um, venue for these astronauts that are announced in very much Hollywood style, red carpet, lots of fanfare, lots of excitement. And, um, you know, there's um, they show clips of the uh, inductees and their missions and, um, they're certainly honored throughout the dinner and some very nice things are said about, you know, via their colleagues, um, on the Friday night, but then the next day on the Saturday back at the Saturn five, while Ken- Kennedy space center is in full operation and lots of times the public unbeknownst to themselves stumble upon this event, they cordon off a large area and set up media and under pretty much under the stage one part of the rocket, um, 
they set up a, an audience area and the dais remained from the previous evening and they call the astronauts in again. Um, all of the attend, all of the members of the hall of fame that were in attendance the night before they come in, they take their position on the stage. Um, they're all wearing their medals and it's really a very nice function that anyone can, um, be a part of. If you're just a member of the public visiting KSC on the Saturday, um, you can observe this. You have to have a ticket, um, from the event prior the the night before to actually sit in the seats that's facing the stage. So the best view, um, of, of the actual induction and, that's usually, and oh, actually NASA TV has broadcast it, so I'm sure you can find an archival broadcast of it on NASA's website or probably on YouTube, and it, it, it's a nice event. What they do is they have a prior or a current member of the Hall of Fame get up and talk um, about the astronauts' accomplishment from a very personal level. These are either members of their astronaut class or... Um, you know, just a, a close personal friend. And at the end of that tribute that they do for their colleague, um, they are awarded their medal that goes around, you know, they put it around their neck and are congratulated. And that's pretty much the induction ceremony. But this year, there were four attendees that were inducted. And um, Guy Bluford Jr., who is, of course, um, the first African-American to fly in space, uh, Kathy Thornton, who I believe is only the third female uh, astronaut inducted into the Hall of Fame. The other two are uh, Sally Ride and Kathy Sullivan. Um, Frank Culberson Jr. and Ken Bowersox, who, um, let's see, they, <clears throat> Thornton, um, Thornton was uh, a big assist in the Hubble Space Telescope mission. Uh, to repair the Hubble telescope on the, the first repair mission. And um, she, of course, performed that um, EVA or series of EVAs with Ken Bowersox himself. So, um, and Culbertson, actually, Frank Culbertson, he was actually um, the commander of the International Space Station during 9-11, which is uh, just sort of an interesting point, but I can't imagine being an American in space completely isolated, sort of watching this entire drama unfold. But he was the commander of the space station at that point. So definitely um, a strong class of inductees this year. And they will rightly take their place on the Pillar Hall and the Astronaut Hall of Fame. I'm sure when those um, pillars are completed, they'll be installed amongst uh, several other pioneers. And they're all, they're all arranged by order of flight. So I don't know if there's any shifting around that will need to occur, but I believe all of the other astronauts do appear in order of first flight. So they may have to do some shifting around in the hall. But it's a wonderful event. It's actually a fundraiser for the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. And I would encourage anyone to check out that website as well, astronautscholarshipfoundation.org. And sorry, if you can do me a favor, you can put that in the show notes for tonight. Will do. Thank you, sir. Not a problem. All righty then. Thank you very much for that, Gina. Looking forward to continuing to see who the inductees are, that's for sure. Next, moving on, we have just a tiny little story to talk about. And that is that <laughs> SpaceX... Yes, Gene, you're laughing because that is the successful tiny. launch of SpaceX's Falcon 9. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4... Three, two, one. Stage one. Lift off. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Falcon 9 has cleared the towers. As you just heard, the rocket launched at T minus two seconds. Yes, it did not actually launch at T minus zero. But it did launch at T minus two seconds, and it did go into orbit successfully. Their Dragon capsule in all stages appeared to work perfectly. So, what were your opinions? Oh boy. Uh, well, congratulations to them. I mean, you can't go ahead and take take anything away from that. The thing worked absolutely flawlessly. Uh, I believe uh, Elon Musk said there was only two little things that happened. 
Uh, one was that they were hoping to recover the uh, the first stage booster relatively intact. Unfortunately, it did break up while coming in, and I believe it it got you know pretty much damaged on on impact. But they are going to go ahead and uh, recover as much of of the first stage booster as they can for analysis. And I believe there was a slight roll on the second stage um, of the uh, of the Falcon Nine, 9 booster, but. Uh, other than that, it was it was it was picture perfect uh, according to what uh, what SpaceX has been has been releasing to us. Um, the flight again, you can't you just can't take anything away from them. And uh, congratulations, and uh, hope this bodes well for the future for them. You know, it's an adjustment to go from the you know on the second on the mark uh, shuttle launches to a, a test flight that basically flies when everything is ready <laughs> and that's uh, yeah. that's a little frustrating when you 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 look at a announced t0 time and then it 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 pushes later and later and later but uh, bottom line is that they uh, they launched on their first wasn't this the first actual scheduled date for their flight oh no they've had many no, scheduled they, dates yeah <laughs> oh Disregard. That's <laughs> uh, okay. Although, yeah, just, one thing I have to say with what you were mentioning there, Mark, about the frustration of it, it seemed like the PAO for SpaceX, like, he was even surprised that it didn't go off at T-minus zero. But then again, throughout the entire broadcast, he wasn't that much of a help. I was I was going to say that, Sawyer. I was, I was trying, I was listening to PAO, to the SpaceX PAO, and I was listening, I had uh, um, uh, the KSC radio feed that you can pick up off of the internet and that was more the, the KSC radio feed was more helpful than than the SpaceX PAO um, the the other thing too is is there the, the public affairs officer that was covering the thing was based in Los Angeles he wasn't on site over at the Kennedy Space Center and that kind of raised my eyebrow a little bit but uh, okay um, I'm sure they'll the SpaceX though will, will this is a learning curve and they'll they'll go ahead and and uh, um, get it right uh, as they go along, but I, I will say that uh, I, I realized too that, you know, that they're trying to keep information, some information, to a minimum, so as to not, you know, reveal any secrets to a potential competitor. But you know, when you're waiting for a new T zero time and you, you've got to get it to from a secondary source, you know, come on. I mean, you're not. That's not going to go ahead, and <laughs> that's not delivering any 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 corporate secrets over to a competitor. You know, I mean, they're going to be looking at the same videotape that you're going to be looking at, and they're going to be looking at the same internet feed that you're going to be looking at. They're probably looking at the same internet feed that you're broadcasting. So, you know, it's it's not. You, you've got to learn to 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 sort of decipher what what's good and what's bad. And the other thing too is is there was a mention about the range safety um, issue. Uh, the PAO just briefly mentioned it. It was actually several ships that kind of sort of wandered into the the range the range safety zone. And the only way I found out about that it was again watching the Twitter feed and watching and listening to KSC radio. So they've got to be a little bit better. They've got to be a little bit more proactive in, in getting information to. Uh, the folks that are actually watching the launch, I think they, they did. They, I don't think they really anticipated this much interest, and I think that's why they, they kind of like lightened up a little bit on things. Agreed, and I think this would be a good point to bring in an email that we got from one of our listeners, Alex Shimp, who is Shimpster on Twitter, and he sent us an email to our email account, mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com, and he said that SpaceX definitely hit this one out of the park. Needless to say, I was most impressed with the launch, but not so impressed with SpaceX's PAO commentary, which I hope with NASA footing set to foot the bill for the next launch, hopefully we are not kept in the dark as much and get some better commentary. I pretty much muted the audio and listened to the Space Flight Now broadcast while watching the SpaceX video. Even though I may have been weary of the commercial approach to quote-unquote new direction, I must say this launch went a long way to changing my view. I felt it had a very Apollo-esque feel to it with the flame coming out of the rocket to the first stage separation, which I must say was very cool. With that said, I'm enthusiastically waiting for the next test flight. What do you think about what Alex said? Yeah, I can't argue with that. I mean, I think uh, you know, they've got a little bit to learn 
with reference to uh, to uh, dealing with the public, and uh, I mean they've they've had a model uh, for the past what forty years, forty fifty years, and that's been that's been NASA. So you know they kind of should go ahead and take a page out of uh, NASA's PAO book and uh, let folks know that you know again you know just let them know that shoot this is this is this is what's going on and you know don't don't keep us in the dark yeah it was tough watching it because you wanted to know what was going on and you didn't even know even the first time where they did the abort which they had at uh t-minus three seconds or so you still even though you saw the rocket there you were wondering what the heck happened I think it took yeah. them just as long to find out what was going on as it did us. And as a matter of fact, I have to say, Twitter was faster than they were. And also, Miles O'Brien and Leroy Chow and David Waters at Space Flight Now. Yeah, I would have a tendency to agree with you there, sir. I mean, it, um, they were uh, uh, they were right on the money, and uh, I kind of I was kind of uh, I was disappointed in the um, in, in the actual space at SpaceX coverage. I was disappointed in the coverage, but very impressed with the launch itself. Yeah, um, the other thing, that, you know, however, is um, uh, I was looking at uh, the, the newspapers and, and the, uh, the uh, net feeds and so on um, post-launch, and um, while everybody was sort of jumping up and down and going, this was really, really a good thing, and I mean, even The Economist uh, had a, a rather uh, glowing article about uh, about SpaceX, even though traditionally the Economist uh, is not a big fan of, uh, of space exploration and human space flight in particular. They are they think the whole thing's a waste of time. From most of the articles I've read in there, um, they were applaud, but they were applauding this one. Um, the uh, the Wall Street Journal, and I believe it it was. Um, on, in the, uh, the June 5th edition, um, indicated, and I'll quote just just uh, just to quote them here, um, saying that uh, unless SpaceX itself manages to get roughly a billion dollars in federal funding, it's questionable whether Mr. Musk will have the resources to re-engineer the Falcon 9 rocket and its Dragon crew, ca- and crew capsule to transport astronauts into orbit by the middle of the decade. So they, you know, they need they need the funding, and to say this is purely a commercial thing, um, you guess where that guess where that money that billion dollars is going to come from? If anybody's looking at their wallets at this point, um, that's probably a good good deal. Um, so that's so they they really need need the funding, and I'm just wondering where where they're going to get get the seed money for that. Yeah. Also, going back one second, there was an interesting thing that we got. To our Twitter account from Science Nate and Mr. Tubbs220, who I believe are the same person, they said, The launch, while impressive, is not groundbreaking. NASA has been relying on contractors such as Grumman and Boeing for years. So do you think that the money could possibly come from contracting, or what do you think about those comments? Oh, it's not. I believe uh, Senator Shelby said something to the, to the same effect, that... Uh, um, the money, you know, that this was nothing groundbreaking, that NASA has been doing this type of thing since the 60s. Where the money is going to come from, again, um, we, right now, the U.S. government is is solely the the sole client of, of SpaceX. And uh, th- will be the sole uh, client for a lot of these, uh, these commercial efforts. So, uh, you know, that's, that's that. Which actually, what, what, kind of disturbs me about that is it's the funding's coming from the same source really um but we don't get that transparency like all this secrecy surrounding it um it, it, it's while in many ways i support this whole commercial endeavor it's kind of hard to take we're putting all this money into it and we get so much less information I don't know how that's going to play out in the future. Yeah, that's another thing, too, that was in the back of my head. And, again, I think that's going to come with time. Uh, this was sort of a, 
their first time, their first outing with dealing with this type of thing. And um, they'll again, they'll they'll get it right. You know, we're talking about uh, SpaceX and their successful launch, and one of the key things about it that is kind of an invisible part that we hear of. We hear them talk about the range and turning the range around. You know, when there have been like uh, earlier this year, STO and uh, the space shuttle were, you know, were days apart, and depending on who got the range would would be who had the next day or two. Anyway, the Eastern Range dates back from the 1950s, and it extends, of course, from Cape Canaveral out to the Ascension Islands in the South Atlantic, almost 5,000 miles. And I saw a description of it that stated that it's pretty antiquated technology and labor intensive. And working for the FAA and having a career that started in 75 with vacuum tube equipment, I can relate to antiquated and labor intensive. And even though I work on more modern equipment today, it's still very labor intensive and time consuming. And so I kind of wonder what the Eastern Range is like in terms of, 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 of what they could do with it if they uh, uh, modernize it. And Obama has a plan that, uh, from what I read in a Florida Today article of June 6th, that apparently is under some pretty intense scrutiny by Congress uh, to make an upgrade to that eastern range. And um, I'm sure it's certainly overdue. They talk about the uh, the benefits of it. Currently, it takes them as much as 48 hours to turn around the range, and I don't know what that means. I'd love to learn more about this, and I think I'll kind of put that in my uh, study folder. But they talk about data being in shuttle format versus if they have a Delta launch, they have Delta forms. And so apparently there's a lot of data that gets handed off between the uh, pad and mission control, you know, launch control, and the range safety folks. And uh, it's something that could definitely, they mentioned software, you know, and who knows how antiquated some of the systems are and the software is that's running it. So, you know, I hope they they get these changes that they're looking for because they talk about it being a benefit to the entire commercial uh, launch business at Kennedy. And here's a little statistic that was in the Florida Today uh, article. And it says of the 378 commercial satellites now in orbit, 240 launched from Guiana or Baikonur. According to the Union of Concerned Scientists, only 59 launched from Cape Canaveral, which has not launched more than one commercial payload a year since 2004. So I would say let's spend some money, improve the range, improve the uh, ability to to launch more than one rocket every couple days so that when people have something that's ready to go that they can they can make some uh, some quick plans and and let it fly I'm hoping too mark that since uh, um, I, if I understand that the uh, uh, part of this new commercial thing is that uh, uh, that the Kennedy Space Center is not going to be the only launch platform that there is. Um, I believe they're being encouraged to launch from other areas. These upgrades may go ahead and sort of entice um, individuals to stay at KSC and to sort of think about the Kennedy Space Center as, as their prime launch area rather than, than going to, say, New Mexico or, or another, uh, another venue to launch their vehicles. So, yeah, definitely, I'd, I'd have to agree with you there. We also want to mention that we got another comment from a Twitter member named Kike Gavlin. I apologize if we pronounced that incorrectly, but he also said, great launch for Falcon 9. And once again, thank you to everybody that sent us the comments. You too can send us your comment. You can either send it by email to mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com, or you can send it to us by our Twitter account, at TalkingSpace. Any final comments on SpaceX? Yeah, just just a couple. Um, one was it's it's the interesting thing was the fallout, uh, the political fallout from the whole thing. Um, it just seemed to go down. Uh, whether you support the line, you know, whether whether you support this new uh, 
this brave new world, as I've been calling it, of commercial space or, or not. And a lot of the folks, uh, you know, Congress, the few uh, few folks in Congress were rather outspoken about it. Uh, the aforementioned uh, Senator Shelby, uh, K. Bailey Hutchinson, and so on had some, you know, saying, okay, congratulations, but, you know, it's nothing that, that we haven't been doing. Um, whereas some other folks have been saying, yeah, you know, I remember seeing one other one blog, and I'm trying to remember which one it was, uh, saying that, you know, yeah, take that. You know, so, you know, take that, all you people who don't think commercial is going to work. And I'm like, well, you know, let, let's let's temper our, our celebration here a little bit by saying this is this was a test flight. It was a, it was a successful test flight. Let's see if we can do it again. So I think the next step is supposed to be uh, a uh, where they'll they'll take a, a Dragon spacecraft and sort of rendezvous with the International Space Station, but not dock. And uh, I understand that uh, we're not too sure when that's going to happen at this point. Um, I believe SpaceX has indicated that it might take about another eight months before they're ready again. And the reason is, you know, they basically just just blew their entire, um, all their resources on on the test flight, on this one test flight to make sure everything works. So um, I'm sure as with with practice and and with time, things were are going to get better with that turnaround time. So everybody's been criticizing that eight month deal too, and I'm like, well, you know, give it time. Things you know, they're, they're they're new kids on the block. So again, congratulations to the new kids on the block. I wish them well. So by rendezvous, do you mean that they would actually be taken in? The capsule would be taken in by robotic arm and hooked up to the station, or just no. go near it? No, it, it will just station keep with, with the International Space Station and then, you know, just sort of fly off. They want to make sure that they can at least go ahead and and, and get to the perimeter of the International Space Station before, you know, and get to a point where where you could grapple it if you so wanted to and then uh, uh, move off and then have the thing move off and, and burn up, so... I think they're just trying. It's another proof of concept type type uh, type flight, from what I understand. Um, Todd Halverson, I believe, uh, from uh, Florida Today, and I was following the Florida Today um, uh, posts as well on the flight um, during the uh, during the countdown. And uh, you know, again, he was uh, Todd Halverson. Uh, tip of the hat to him. He was he was very good. Um, and he was explaining in on the uh, on the Florida Today site how how that was all going to work on the live feed. So uh, again, um, you know, if you want to go ahead and take a look at it, I think it's still up there on on, on the uh, Flame Trench blog. If anybody wants to take a look at it, and he does explain rather rather neatly uh, how that's all going to work. Let's hit T minus two and fly away onto our next topic, which was a new speed record was set. And that was by the Boeing X-51, better known as the Wave Rider. It's called such because it is a hypersonic aircraft that actually rides on its own shockwaves to help generate some lift and some speed. The spacecraft, the craft hit over Mach 5, which is definitely a new record, and that was in May of 2010. So, any comments on the X-51 Wave Rider? And we're not talking about the comic book hero? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you said Mach 5, didn't I, I thought something else, but... <laughs> <laughs> go, Speed Racer, go, go, Speed Racer. But, uh, no, this is, this is something really, really significant. Uh, if, if you could go ahead and, and apply this to a, to a commercial airliner... Um, or even a spacecraft, just just picture what you can do with it. Uh, it, it would really, really open a lot of doors uh, with uh, with new technology here. I found some trivia on the Wave Rider that uh, just to me is extremely cool. They the flight was 200 seconds, and they were, I believe, going for th- was it 300 seconds? Does that sound right? I have here. Um, this is uh, from. Uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, uh, they um, and their website, they're saying that it flew for about 200, second, 200 seconds and reached a speed of approximately Mach 5, which uh, for anybody who doesn't know is about 4,000 miles an hour. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, just for trivia, the, the uh, X-51A is 26 feet long, weighs around 4,000 pounds empty, 
and its uh, competition. The second place was the NASA X-43, and it flew at hypersonic speeds for 12 seconds. So when you consider a jump from 12 seconds to 200, they had good clean engine data from what I read, and uh, they've got three more flights planned for later this year. They're going to be reviewing the data, of course, that they did get off of this flight, and they got three more. And basically, they're, uh, they drop them from a B-52 at 50,000 feet, and I don't know exactly what speed they're at, but from what I read on a B-52, that could be as, as fast as maybe 650 mile an hour. And from there up to nearly 4,000. Uh, part of that flight is with an Army um, booster that accelerates it up to uh, to near that speed. And then the scramjet kicks in and, and carries it on from there. But uh, that's exciting. It's something that they talk about. It's not going to make a difference today, but 15 to 30 years from now, the technology, and this is one of the things that we want to see more of with NASA. We want to see more development of, of some new new stuff, some exotic things, some different ways of doing it, because a scramjet could allow you to, to not carry oxidizer aloft, to, to get up into extremely fast uh, speeds and high altitudes to where you could take over with, with other types of, uh, you know, rocket propellants at that point. I think it's neat. And yeah, indeed, it does bode well for the future. I and mean, think about the, uh, the not, not just the military applications, but the commercial and indeed the, the spaceflight applications to such a, such a vehicle. So uh, it should be interesting if this, how this goes in another, you know, 10 to 15, maybe 20 years, um, how this, this all plays out. And one of the things I really like about it is a picture that I found makes a great desktop background on my work laptop. Yeah, I've I've got that I've got the same thing up on my <laughs> on my Mac right now. <laughs> Since you found that Sawyer, we're gonna have to go ahead and put that sucker in the show notes. Let's continue on to the first successful use as it was given its first light, Sophia, which is actually a telescope that is built into the side of a giant modified Boeing 747. SOFIA, just so you know, stands for the Stratospheric Observation for Infrared Astronomy, and it can actually be used while the airplane is being flown in the air, and it was finally given its first light. So what do you think SOFIA is going to be able to help us out for, for uh, flying around and looking in the sky? Seems like a great concept to me to have something that you can uh, you can send up and uh, and have short duration missions that are targeted for specific observations. Um, you know, it doesn't involve a satellite. It doesn't involve um, you know ground observations. I know have challenges with getting through the atmosphere with uh, with the spectrum they're trying to see being being to some extent blocked by atmospherics and. Uh, Seems kind of kind of exciting. It's been on the drawing board for a while, and uh, good to have some this you know this first light uh, progress. Yeah, the the, the project is uh, managed by NASA's Ames Research Center, and I believe it will be based at uh, the uh, Dryden Flight Research Research Center, which is, I believe is around by if somebody can check me on this, um, around Edwards Air Force Base, that area. Um, and most of the mission operations will be at, uh, uh, out of Ames. Uh, the, if anybody, by the way, if anybody uh, stops over by the Ames uh, Visitor Center, I was there last year, and that's sort of the, 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 the real fixture over there. Um, it's, it's a project that everybody over at Ames is apparently very, very proud of. And uh, so if you're never over by the Visitor Center over, over at the Ames Research Center, take a look. They've got some really good and solid information on uh, on, on Sophia. Um, I was initially a little skeptical reading about what, what it was going to do, but uh, I, I know as, as a, am, a bit of an amateur astronomer, I sneeze the wrong way and I have my, my telescope kind of mounted up. It, it, it kind of, you know, it, it, I'll lose my picture. But, you uh, when that happens. Yeah, I know. Uh, but uh, uh, this apparently is one heck of a one heck of going to be one heck of a platform for uh, for astronomical research. So uh, 
you know, I I wish the project well, and, and I'm happy that uh, First Light uh, succeeded. Again, if anybody wants to learn more about this, check the show notes. There's a lot of information down there this time. All right, let's continue along. And let's just say that the people at NASA for this next one could be considered not so wise. <laughs> oh, very good. Like you wonder why one. everyone is laughing here? It, well, that's because we are talking about the WISE telescope, which, WISE, just so you know, is another NASA acronym, which happens to stand for... Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. Thanks, Mark, for helping me out there then. Anyway, what it's going to be used for, it did some infrared surveying, and let's just say that they asked for a mission extension. Their request was denied. This is the first time I've ever heard of this. Have you guys ever heard of a mission asking for an extension and being denied? Other than the space shuttle? <laughs> oh, well, that, you, that, opened you know, a, that, that opened up a can of worms. <laughs> yeah, from what I read, the program is a $320 million price tag, and they wanted $6.5 million more for three months, and you know, we certainly can't afford six and a half million dollars for a you know another thirty to ninety days of science. I mean, you know, gee whiz, what do you think we're made of money? <laughs> really want uh, me to answer that? I'm 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 joking. I I can't see having a a you know a good explorer, having a good spacecraft up there that's performing magnificently, and just saying, okay, let's just shut it off. Everybody go home. Imagine if uh, we did that with the Mars rovers after, uh, what, 120, 180 days. You know, look at where we are now with six years of uh, science on Mars. And I know WISE isn't going to accomplish that because they're going to lose their their cryogenics uh, to keep the instrument at that super cold temperature. They're going to lose that capability, but they still have two sensors uh, even without that that they could make observations with. And who knows what they'd find. Or in yes. this case, won't find. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the only thing, by the way, the only thing that, that comes to mind was the uh, the Apollo uh, the Apollo allsets or the experiment packages that were left behind by uh, um, some of the Apollo missions. They were uh, uh, turned off prematurely, or at least some of them were, anyway. And uh, that, to me, was a was a crime. Um, so to me, this is this this is kind of sort of in the same uh, in the same vein. I think uh, if you've got something perfectly good up there, and it's going to take just a you know, I mean, six million dollars to to you and me is is you know like whoa, but to uh, in in the long stretch of things here for for the for the project, I don't think it's it's that much money. Honestly, in my opinion, if we're getting science and we're getting a lot out of it. I, it's worth the extra money. That's just my personal opinion, though. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And when you're talking yeah. about it being $320 million and then $6.5 million for the three months, it, it seems like um, that would also add to what we got out of that original $320 million. Especially since it wants to do this extra survey of of things that we're actually quite concerned with looking at far more, you know? I guess no, it's a matter of ratio to me. <laughs> yeah. No argument there. You know, because what are we, what, you know, eventually we're probably going to launch something else to end up doing the same thing that's going to be another $320 million. <laughs> It just seems like it always kind of works that way. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, of course, this will provide some justification, like you said, Cassie, for for future science, I mean, they've they've found done some incredible things with it, and uh, you know, there's things that I'm reading where they've got 7,500 images a day from Wise, and uh, okay. it's going to take time to it's going to take time to uh, to really get what they can learn from that. So, in fact, it actually that makes it more than 7,500 because each of those. It's got it's seventy five hundred in each of the infrared wavelengths. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. So, any last comments? 
Any other wisecracks that we got? Oh, oh. I'm gonna look for something to throw. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to duck. <laughs> anyway, before I get any worse with these jokes, I believe we have one last topic, and I'm going to hand this over to you, Gene and Craftlast, because. You two were there for the New York City tweet up. So, do you guys want to talk a little bit about the event? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll start it off. Uh, the uh, th- this was a, a something I learned about just right after uh, uh, getting out of the uh, the SGS one thirty thirty two tweet up. Um, just heard of, just you know heard the heard about the event. Um, a few days afterward, and and applied and go and bit my nails, and lo and behold, uh, was selected to go. Uh, there was about 64 uh, individuals um, that were part of this thing. It was about maybe half the size of uh, other events that uh, I had attended, uh, uh, as far as the tweetups are concerned. But you know, it, just because it was half the size, uh, it actually made I think the event a little better. Uh, because I think the uh, uh, just having the, the small crowd with uh, with the folks that uh, were, were speaking to us was uh, was a bit of a plus. Um, the uh, the uh, scheduled speakers um, were uh, Dr. Brian Green. Um, this was I should mention I'm a little dilatory in mentioning this. This was going to be held in conjunction with the World Science Festival that took place at uh, New York University uh, this past week. Um, Dr. Brian Green was the one who originated the uh, World Science Festival, and he came over to talk to us for a little bit. Um, Nobel laureate Dr. John Mather uh, also uh, was part of the uh, uh, part of the speakers, and uh, that was a, a rare treat. I mean, how often does one get to speak to a Nobel laureate one on one? That was uh, that was kind of fun and ask questions. And uh, uh, um, Shuttle astronaut Leland Melvin uh, from uh, STS-129 and STS-121 uh, was there, and uh, we had a, also a special guest uh, as well, uh, unannounced uh, uh, astronaut San- Sandra Magnus came over to talk to us too. Uh, she had been not only on shuttle flight but also on an ISS uh, expedition and uh, was talking to us about uh, the differences between uh, a long-duration uh, ISS uh, mission and a short-duration shuttle flight. So there was a lot to cover uh, during this thing. And again, uh, a lot of people were. Um, it, again, the crowd was small, but it was a it was a very attentive and very very uh, very fun uh, fun crowd. And I would like to mention that a large portion of the crowd was teachers which was very exciting. Uh, We had all the way from elementary to college teachers there, and this was such an incredible opportunity for them. I hope they all bring it back to the classroom. We, one of, I know one of the questions came from a community college professor of uh, astronomy and astrophysics, and I think for people like that to get this opportunity to ask questions was it was astounding, and they had incredible questions, very well thought out, things I wish I would have thought to ask. And it was quite a treat to get to meet so many teachers, too, and interact with them, almost, you know, almost as great as getting to hear these speakers speak, which yeah, I yeah. think you know, is a big part of a tweet-up, is not just the event itself, but everybody getting to interact you know, most of us don't have that many science geeks or space geeks in our lives. And so to meet people who are out there in classrooms trying to, you know, breed the next generation of uh, interest, and it, it was absolutely incredible to share the room with them. Yeah, the interest, you, you, you hit on something something there. Um, the interesting thing, too, was how uh, both uh, Dr. Mather and Dr. Green were going ahead and sort of, well, they were replying to questions about uh, uh, the uh, education system in general, and uh, they had some, some very interesting insights on uh, on uh, on how the education system seems to be working here. Um, one of the things that uh, Dr. Green had said, he wants to uh, have people stop 
thinking about science and science as a as a book subject and start thinking about it as a as a way of life in a way and um, I think dr. Mather had something similar to similar to same similar to say uh, with reference to um, the, uh, the education system I think he was trying to say that you know while the rote learning is, is fine um, it just doesn't teach you how to apply what you're what you're doing or, or how, how you know how you know learning all this abstract mathematics well you know you kind of sit there and you go well, what what the heck are you going to apply it to maybe if you go ahead and you have some kids do some real honest to god science like take you know say there's a program that nasa or maybe not even necessarily nasa maybe the, maybe the national science foundation or something like that is doing some hardcore research have these kids go in there and assist with that research and that will go ahead and just sort of spur on you know the the the, uh, the idea of doing wanting to do more with this uh, the whole idea is just you know get them out of the classroom and and, and i believe the what was, you know, having to do the fun things. The thing that really struck me, and of course, I'm an artist, so of course it would probably strike me more than other people, was all four speakers made the point of using art to spread the word about science. Um, like, I, can't, I, I believe it was Dr. Green who said, um, why, why are we using pure fiction for movies when real science is actually more captivating. Why isn't that the basis for some fantastic science fiction? Real hard science what's actually out there. And I think he's absolutely correct. It's these things can be so fascinating without even having to add much fiction to it. You know, add dialogue as fiction. You don't need to have the actual basis be you know, sheer fiction, which is also brilliant from an entertainment point of view because it feels false. If you watch a lot of science fiction, the very premise is so false that it's hard to suspend your disbelief and make an enjoyable movie. So why not actually base art on real science? Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that was um, what... Uh uh, uh, Dr. Green was doing. I think he he had written a book or or a kid's book about uh, or a story about a, uh, a a boy going over to a black hole, and he didn't do it in in whimsical sense. He actually tried to make it scientifically correct, and he had the child come back. Uh, you know what was it? Ten thousand years in, in, into the future, and learning that you know, nothing that he remembered, including his parents, were were, were no longer no longer there. And uh, all this was done, I believe, this was done Sunday night to an orchestral back, background, I think. And I kind of wish I, I had tickets to go see that because it would have been a, a quite, a, quite a, a, an event to go see. But um, a lot of people were, were saying, oh, gee, how come you had the boy do that, you know, and all this? He said, well, because that's the way it actually works. He didn't go ahead and take any artistic, you know, no pun intended, artistic license. And tried to say, oh, you know, the boy is reunited with his parents in the end. No, you know, that's just the way general relativity works. And by uh, the way, the name of that book is Icarus at the Edge of Time. Thank you. I, I, I almost forgot about that. Thank you very much for mentioning it. Um, also, Dr. Dr. Green alluded to how this whole thing started. I believe the, the, the World Science uh, Festival was actually an offshoot from an event that they did in Genoa, Italy, that... Uh, uh, Dr. Cream was was attending and uh, thought, hey, this might be a neat thing to bring in New York. And that's how the whole World Science Festival started. Any so had, final comments before we wrap it up? Just hats off to everybody that uh, um, uh, put the uh, the NYC uh, tweet up event together. Uh, I thought they did a, a pretty good job uh, both getting the uh, the guests to come and, and talk to us and uh, and putting the the event together as a well. whole. And I, I, I'd like to add to that that they, they did do a great job, and I think that they proved that a tweet-up doesn't have to be the, uh, around a launch or, you know, to be interesting and to be very much worth going to, no matter what. 
um, to to be in a room with a Nobel laureate, I think, is actually just as precious as getting to go to a launch, if not more. And, uh, you know, kudos to them for putting this together. Um, it was a big risk, and I think that it actually was a fantastic success for anybody who was there and got to share in this experience. Yeah. Oh, and I should mention that I noticed this was the most tweeted comment was about the James Webb Telescope when Dr. Mather was asked um, if we were going to get spectacular images with yes. Hubble. He said um, things that are the same distance as the moon. What, what was the exact quote, Gene? I, I'm the trying only... to remember. I remember, it, I remember part of the quote, but not all of it. You would see, be able to see. I think he alluded to the fact that you don't. It would be like seeing a bumblebee on the surface of the moon. That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. So that, it, that tells that tells you something right there. It's he. He definitely got me even more jazzed for the James Webb Telescope. I, I've already been following it excitedly, but now I'm about ten times more excited, and I just can't wait to see that get up there. And with that, I'd say we are just about finished here. Before we do, I must give a big thank you to Patrick Gormley, Susan Marinoff, and all of the people at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum in New York City for promoting the Talking Space podcast. And for everybody else that's out there, they're also trying to get a petition to bring the space shuttle to New York City. So if you feel so inclined to, all you need to do is your name and your email address. Just go to shuttle2nyc.com and sign your name and try and get a space shuttle at the Intrepid if you feel like it. And with that, we are finished here. So thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. Thank you very much, Gene McCulka. Always a pleasure, Sawyer. Thanks so much. Not a problem. Thank you again, Mark Ratterman. It's good getting together again. Nice talking <laughs> with everybody. I agree. Thank you again, Gina Hurlihy. Anytime, Sawyer. And thank you as well, Craftless. Oh, well, thank you for having me, and I'll echo Gina anytime. All right. And to play us out tonight, instead of our usual music, is Above the Sky, written, in fact, by Craftlass. And if you'd like, you can download her entire album title Across the Sky by following the link in the show notes. And once again, thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. a speck on a tiny rock Looking up with hope tonight for a glimpse of two tiny dots Speeding through the sky they soar into view together The grandest work man has ever done Breaking from gravity's Wondrous 